Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Well, welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles. I'm Tyler Kern, and I'm virtually alongside the president of ARC Specialties, Dan Alford. Dan, good to talk to you today. Good to be social distancing with you here today. <laughs> Dan makes a joke because today we're talking about lockdowns due to coronavirus and uh, talking about maybe some of the business implications of that. Obviously, Dan is a business owner, started Arc Specialties, uh, you know, and so Dan has a perspective on this. But Dan, also, um, you were overseas and you started to see maybe some of the ramifications of lockdowns and, and what that can do to a particular society, maybe some of the unforeseen effects of that. And so we're going to get into it where we might debate a little bit and uh, just talk about the overall the overall viability of lockdowns and whether or not they're a good idea or a bad idea. But first, Dan, let's start off overseas. Uh, you were on a trip and you saw some of the uh, some of the maybe lesser known effects or maybe unforeseen effects of lockdowns. Tell us a little bit more about that story, where you were and uh, what you experienced. Oh, I was uh, vacationing in Zambia and we were way out in the bush and the place that I was visiting, uh, they've experienced an 80% reduction in uh, tourist travel. So along with that's an 80% reduction in uh, tourist dollars. And where I was, you know, that's what these people are living on largely. They, you know, this is uh, very simple villages. I think the, uh, the average person in Zambia lives on less than a dollar a day. And sure enough, in the camp that I was visiting, the high paid workers were at $100 a month. So, you know, that's, so what I saw that was shocking to me was the, what was actually happening. You know, I've been blogging about shutdowns for quite a while, but here was an aspect of it I hadn't even considered. And that was what happens when the tourist dollars are cut off in these places. So specifically, you know, people get laid off and some of the people that are being laid off are the anti-poaching squad. And the anti-poaching squad, these are tough guys, man. They, they live in the bush, live in tents. They all have weapons that they confiscated from poachers and, uh, most of the time, they're, uh, they're, you know, it's no violent conflict, but what they're doing is removing snares. And the, the thing that I saw was these snares are, are truly horrible. The, the snares are very indiscriminate. They, they put them out to try to catch uh, animals for meat. And so they'll, they'll snare an animal's foot. But what I saw was a lion with its paw completely torn off by a snare. It was horrible. Hmm. And, and the only reason we saw this animal was uh, he was near a kill. His partner, his uh, hunting partner, thankfully, that uh, had taken out a, a big Cape buffalo, and they were dining on Cape buffalo when it came by. The, the one with uh, four good feet ran off, but the one with uh, three feet, you know, he was kind of uh, limited on how far he and how fast he could travel, so he just kind of hunkered down and watched us. And the only reason this guy's still alive is he has a hunting partner. And... And I posted a video of this thing that we shot online and, you know, I've got a video of it hobbling off on three legs and the only way he can survive is, is with his partner. So I did this because it seems to be falling on deaf ears. All my criticism of the lockdown, I thought maybe somebody would better understand the ramifications of these lockdowns. There's a lot of unintended consequences, in, you know, including suffering of animals in Zambia. You just wouldn't have thought of it. That is a good point. I mean, I think it's often out of sight, out of mind for for some of these um, 
for for a situation like that, right? I don't often think about the um, you know how what we do here can affect a, a country like Zambia, but it does, and that's that's one of those things. I, I guess my question about that, just from my perspective, I guess, is that is it lockdowns that's keeping people from from traveling to Zambia, or if just looking at the numbers, given the fact that that coronavirus has had such an impact on on travel and uh, and people have seen some of the uh, some of the effects of coronavirus in terms of uh, number of infections number of people that have passed away from it would people be traveling even if there even if lockdowns were lifted would there still be an impact on on Zambia's tourism no certainly you're right you know nothing's black and white and and can I actually say this is a, a, a three-legged lion because of this Lockdown, certainly not, but I'm just saying the trend is there. And I guarantee that the lockdown is some of the effect because many of the African countries were actually prohibiting travel for a while. And, uh, and even Zambia was prohibiting travel, I believe, until August. And so that undoubtedly is lockdown right there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, some people are concerned. And plus, you know, people that are traveling are typically not, not atypically older. And so they're more susceptible. So yeah, some people are, it's voluntary, but I just wanted to be clear that there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of unintended consequences here. And, and this was one of them. So let's talk about some of the other unintended consequences because they, they hit, they do hit a little closer to home than, than Zambia even. Right. And, uh, although Africa is near and dear to my heart, my mom was born and raised in Africa. I've been there. Uh, I've been to Kenya. I guess Africa is a continent. Kenya is a country uh, the same way Zambia is, but, uh, but Africa is a, is a place that I love and, and have ties to and, and, and roots there and that sort of thing. And so, but there are effects that have been closer to home. Right. And so you have some, some facts and figures and numbers that kind of back up, uh, your perspective on this when it comes to lockdowns and maybe their effect on uh, on society in general, maybe a little bit closer to home. Yeah, and it's all over the place. Uh, you know, during the Great Depression, suicide went up 1% for every 1% increase in unemployment. And, and we're starting to see a similar trend this time. So suicides are up. Depression, I saw one stat saying it's tripled from 8% of the, the public in America reporting depression to 24%. Domestic violence is up. Uh, you know, it just goes on and on, but I, it seems to fall on deaf ears. So uh, I don't know what's going to convince people. And, and you're part of the target audience. You know, what do I need to tell you? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, what do I need to hear that, that convinces me that, that lockdowns are a bad idea? I, I suppose one of the things that, I, that I've read is that you know, there was a study that came out from the Imperial College, uh, London School of Public Health, that said um, that infection rates and death rates in 11 European nations through May 4th, in their estimation, they, they decided that they thought an additional 3.1 million people in those countries would have died if lockdowns hadn't been put in place, right? And so this feels like choosing the... <laughs> choosing the lesser of two evils almost, right? Which, which feels like a lot of situations in life. But, but in this particular case, you're, you're looking at, at the effects of, of lockdowns, but also in a lot of countries like you know Germany, Norway, some of these countries where um, the, uh, the infection and the death rate was much lower than it was in the United States or, or other countries, it feels like lockdowns worked on some level, right? And, and maybe you take that because it outweighs the other negative consequences of depression going up and domestic violence. As terrible as that feels to say, 
it it does seem like you you're having to pick and choose which evil is worse here, right? Well, no, I think we've got some hard data coming out of Europe. You know, Sweden refused to lock down, and so the the latest thing I saw was uh, 586 fatalities per million in Sweden, and that's pretty close to what we have in Texas, where it's 610. You know, where we had minimal lockdown, but if you look at South Dakota, they're lower at 380. Hmm. And if you look at New York, it's 1720, twice Texas. And so, uh, you know, from those numbers, you know, I think you conclude can conclude that lockdowns kill. But but couldn't you also say that population density is going to factor into that? And if you look at a country like Germany that had a full lockdown, their hard data was 113 per million which is a lot lower than places like Texas and, you know, places like South Dakota even or Nor- or uh, Sweden. So they had some success in, in Germany, you would say, right? If 400 people per million fewer died from coronavirus, that would be considered uh, maybe a success in my book. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the whole point of this lockdown was to flatten the curve. If you can rewind back to the beginning of it, nobody said this is going to uh, reduce the overall death rate. So we got to wait till the fat lady sings before we, you know, we count all the bodies here. And so, yes, we'll flatten the curve, avoid loading the hospitals. But uh, I, I suspect that uh, Germany will make up these deaths over time. Because what the you know what a virus does is it attacks the susceptible, and that that's what I'm all about. Now I'm all about protecting the susceptible, and that's that's old people and anyone that wants to be protected. Uh, you know they can seclude themselves any way they want. I just want the rest of us to be allowed to continue to work. I want the kids to go back to school. I want the recent graduates to get jobs. That's my point. So I guess I guess my thought always was that if we had done a better job of just locking down early, quickly, that we could have done all of those things already, but we never did do a good job of that, right? We never really did fully lock down in a lot of ways. And so the, the problem that, that we have suffered is that our death rate has always been higher than a place like Germany. And maybe Germany shoots back up, and I'm proven wrong in this case, but so far anyways, we've never really we've never really done what it takes to nip this in the bud. And so we can't send kids back to school because we never did a good job of this in the first place. In in my opinion, I always thought that if we had done this and done it right for two months and kind of absorbed the consequences then, then we wouldn't still be dealing with this nine months down the road. But here we are. Yeah, but, you know, all you have to have is a few cases to start spreading again. And and so it's kind of inevitable, you know, and, and... You know, we have a saying in the ranching business, you can't have livestock without dead stock. You know, death is part of life. And, and this is how, pan, you know, virus pandemics uh, run their course. You know, they, we have very little control. You know, it's the minimum time we've ever taken in the world to create a new vaccine is three years. So, you know, by then it's probably will have run its course anyway. And if you could design a pandemic, this would be the one I would design. It spares kids. You know, I'm 62, so I have a 30 times higher mortality rate than, than a 20 to 25 year old. So once again, uh, we're, if, you look, if you look at lost years, you know, if an infant dies, you know, they, they've lost 80 years. If, if uh, somebody my age dies, you know, 20 years. <laughs> and I can be uh, cruel and heartless when I'm talking about myself. So one of the other angles I wanted to cover of this, and it, it, it relates 
to what you just said to a certain extent, at least in, in my mind, is um, the economic and maybe the business impact of this, because you, you are someone who owns and runs a business, right? And so what have you seen from your perspective of the, the impact of lockdowns and how has this affected what you do at our Specialties? How, this effect, how has this affected clients and other colleagues that you have that uh, do similar things, that work in similar areas and, and just you know the, the people that you have interacted with? How have you seen the impacts when it comes to, uh, to economics here in the United States. And I think that's one reason that you aren't as concerned as I am because we have sheltered ourselves from the impact. We have printed $3 trillion in additional debt. We've used the money to soften the blow. You know, and that, that's all well and good when you're the reserve currency of the world, uh, which we are, but uh, Zambia, mm, not so much. Right. They, they, they can't print money. And so they haven't had this buffer. So I, I think that uh, if your family was starving, you might, you might see it my way. But here in the U.S., instead, we've, we've propped up businesses. Uh, and, and I think that there's some uh, real problems with this in the long term because I think we're, we're killing the, the uh, free market motivation in America because people no longer believe that they can start a business and run it. They, the government might stop them from running it. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of negative ramifications to this, and that's if you ignore the uh, three trillion dollars in debt that we have to pay back one day. Yeah, that's the that's the part that uh, eventually I'm going to get shouldered with, right? Right, that won't be my problem. That, that's, <laughs> that's your problem. Uh, but there's there's a real disincentive to work and innovate because if you're going to get paid anyway, then why bother? Uh, J.P. Morgan in uh, this week's uh, newsletter they said. This is a direct quote, although it has a negative impact on the short term, the reemergence of lockdowns and resultant growth weakness could bolster the above equity upside over medium to long term by inducing more QE and thus more liquidity. So what did they just tell us? Uh, lockdowns are good for the big businesses because, uh, you know, they get propped up with QE. But that is not any way to run an economy. Right. But I, I guess my counter of that is that you say that, um, okay, this would, this would rob me of 15, 20 years, something along, something along those lines. Kids, largely impervious to it, don't have the same level of infection rates that we've seen in adults. And, you know, this virus really doesn't impact them to a certain extent, but it would rob them of 75 years. But aren't, aren't the Dan Alfords of this country, the people that run businesses, and aren't you the people that are employing people? So we can't really afford to lose a ton of Dan Alfords uh, across the country, right? Because to a certain extent, you are still driving our economy and you are still employing people and, and generating jobs and things like that, right? So if we were to if we were to lose a lot of people like you, wouldn't we still be in a bad spot regardless of the deficit? Ah, each generation is, is smarter and better, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't give me too much credit here. Uh, I think, you know, that's not an issue. You know, somebody will take my place as long as we don't crush the incentive to innovate and create businesses. So, no, I'm not. And I, I think that people have a problem with judging a risk. And maybe it's because life has gotten to be too safe. You know, when I was in Zambia, I was exposed to malarial mosquitoes. But, you know, I was taking malarial drugs and I was exposed to sleeping sickness. And there is no drug to take to avoid sleeping sickness and the fatality rate is 100% without treatment. And so I was bitten by a bunch of tsetse flies and you just keep watching them to see if you get the, uh, the signs of sleeping sickness. So that was much higher risk than for 
a, a disease which only kills, you know, a few hundred per million. So uh, I, I think people are just completely misunderstanding the, the real risk that's here. It's, it's quite low. I guess when you see maybe death totals from something that we haven't seen before kind of seemingly come out of nowhere, right? Like you, you, we've come to expect the flu every year, right? Um, that's something that, uh, you know, you can get a flu vaccine, you can choose not to. Sometimes it's really effective, sometimes it's not. We've come to expect and, and live with that. So on a certain level, is is that how you feel that we will be with coronavirus into the future? Just kind of wait until we get a wait until we get a vaccine and just kind of uh, assume the risk that it's that it's around these days because I think that that's where a lot of the fear has come from from a lot of people is that there are certain things that we've accepted as not normal but uh, accepted as the risk of simply being alive right uh, many people will get cancer many people will get the flu many people will have heart disease things along those lines but for something new to come in that really kind of shakes up the um, uh, maybe the the way that people view their own health and and their own vulnerability and that sort of thing that, that we all live with the risk of of we could potentially be diagnosed with cancer tomorrow but dying from something new that kind of comes out of the blue is not something we're prepared to really reconcile when it comes to our risk uh, our risk profiles let's say there's new viruses every year otherwise you wouldn't have a different vaccination each year this has been happening forever, you know, and we've coexisted with viruses for millions of years. This one is one of my favorite viruses, because like I said, it spares the young ones. Now, if this was something as deadly as Ebola or even the Spanish flu, which was, you know, I've seen numbers which would indicate it, the Spanish flu in the early 1900s was 100 times more deadly, then I might react differently. And if it was if it was killing kids, I'd react differently. I would, I would definitely protect the kids, but I just think this is a, you know, ill-advised policy and overreaction to a relatively benign disease. See, I still go back to the to the beginning, and I guess we're this this might be where we end up is just talking in in circles around each other because I still think that that there is data and that there are numbers out there that would suggest that that lockdowns, especially initially uh, across much of Europe, was really effective in terms of curbing what the potential death toll would have been in those countries and now we're left looking back and saying oh that that wasn't so bad we really locked down for that when it could have been much worse maybe lockdowns worked in preventing millions more deaths and we don't know but um but but i guess that's what i keep coming back to is the idea that that it it appears benign but maybe it appears benign because we did some of the right things um but no, maybe no, not. no it's not benign because of that i mean uh, i my daughter had it completely asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most you know, most of the young people they're completely asymptomatic. You know, if you're going to design a disease, asymptomatic is the way to go. <laughs> you know, because you don't even know you have it. But isn't that uh, the and, worst? And, because then more people more people get infected, and some won't be asymptomatic. You know, you're a you're you know you're a bag full of different uh, bacteria living and going <laughs> coexisting inside your body. You know, you might as well. Face it, you know, there's a, there's symbiotic organisms living in the hair follicles of your eyelashes. You know, this is just the way it is. And, uh, and like I said, if this was Ebola, I'd be reacting entirely differently. Mm. If it's killing kids, I'd react entirely differently. But no, you know, yeah, I'm not going to convince anybody, but that's why I threw up, a, you know, the three-legged lion thing, you know, because 
people seem to be concerned with you know the death rates and we argue about the death rates and we're going to continue to argue you know, for probably i estimate two more years but i'm just just bringing up these points in the meantime because i hate to see the, all the negative consequences on real people that's going down as we speak well i think that I think that having conversations like this is is good, right? Because me, I'm in a um, at a certain age where a lot of the people that I interact with, a lot of the people that I am friends with on Facebook, Twitter, things like that, it it does tend to become a bit of an echo chamber, right? So it's interesting getting your perspective on this because it's not a perspective I see on a regular basis, right? And I think on some level we we're always going to maybe disagree on this, but it, it, it is really interesting getting your perspective on this. And uh, I, I'm sure many of your listeners won't like me very much, but that is okay because uh, because I, I think we're just sharing our, our view on a situation where it feels like both sides feel bad. Well, they're not going to like me either. You, you saw the reaction <laughs> to our Lieutenant Governor when he said as a grandfather, he would gladly sacrifice his life for his grandchildren. I thought that's the definition of parenting and grandparenting. Right, uh, and yet he caught all sorts of flack over that, and, and and you know my mind exploded when people gave him grief over that. You know any parent or grandparent that would not lay down their life for their children, grandchildren, uh, I don't think they should be parents. But you know that's just my opinion. But let's <laughs> let's explore this this riskometer. So uh, do you get the uh, flu vaccination every year? I don't. You don't. And, and, and so your, you know, your riskometer is broken. You know, the reason I do it, it's not for me. It was pointed out to me by a good friend of mine who's a, a, a superb physician. She said, Dan, that's selfish. She says, you're putting other people at risk. You know, people that are more susceptible than yourself. Because, you know, I don't care. You know, you and I don't care. We, we go get the flu, we get better. Right. But I was putting people at risk. So for the last three years, I have, have done it. And yet you don't. Does, doesn't that make you a hypocrite? Yeah, on some level it does. And so I should probably get a flu vaccine this year. Yeah. Why, why did it take this pandemic to get you to see the light, though? And, and when you ride in the car, do you wear a helmet? No, but I do wear a seatbelt. But, you know, head injuries are what you should worry about most. You know, our race cars, there is no way I'd get into a race car without a helmet. You know, it's it's horribly dangerous. And yet, you know, you're you consider that to be a tolerable risk. How, do you, how did you arbitrarily draw these lines on flu vaccinations, COVID, and helmets? No, that's a, I mean, it's a good question. And now that you point out the, the selfish aspect of it, that, that has been my, my point of view regarding coronavirus, right? That I'm going to stay at home as much as possible and, um, and do the things that will keep others safe. Because my thought this entire time is that while Dan Patrick can say you know, yes, I, I would sacrifice myself for, you know, for my grandkids. It's also from my perspective, not his, um, not his job to say that he would sacrifice other people's grandparents. Right. Uh, we don't want to ascribe that much power to the government. And I think that you wouldn't want that either, but uh, I suppose that that's been my perspective this entire time during coronaviruses. I don't want to be selfish, uh, despite the fact that I would rather be hanging out, you know, at a restaurant with my friends on Saturday night. I'm not going to do that because I don't want my friend to hang out there and, you know, me not know that I have it, give it to my friend who then goes and visits his grandparents and then his grandparents get it right and so 
so with the flu vaccine, I should probably take that same that same perspective. That doesn't mean that I was right all these years about a flu vaccine. It probably means I was wrong and I was being a hypocrite about it. But I think I can admit that. Right. Well, I was. You know, I, I misunderstood <laughs> the, the challenge until it was explained to me by you know an accomplished physician. Right. And and, uh, and if I could take a vaccine and make the old people safe, yeah, I would do it. But uh, here's the deal. Uh, it, you can you can hide Granny all you want, and and I'm not asking her to go to work. I'm just asking for the right to go to work. I'm asking for the right for students to go back to school. If I, I've spoken with several teachers, and none of them will tell you that the quality of the education is nearly as good uh, with remote learning. So we're cheating these kids, you know, to protect Granny. Mm, bad bad swallow. No, I think you're right about education. I think it's been a a massive challenge in in that regard and so there yeah no i i I think that there are massive challenges when it comes to something along these lines but i I suppose that i i would i would agree if it was just granny but it's not is it well we we leave grandpa in there too but uh you know what is the have you seen the data on the average age of someone that that succumbs to a covid 75 to 80. Mm mm-hmm I hope I live that long, you know, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue to race cars, uh, go where they have sleeping sickness, uh, go where they have malaria and, and, and take acceptable risk. And, and it's definitely an acceptable risk for me to go to work. And fortunately, you know, I have a letter from the undersecretary of defense saying that my company is part of the critical infrastructure of America. So we have not only the right, but the obligation to continue to work. And mm-hmm. so, as soon as I got that letter, you know, I said, all right, you know, that, that, that supports my theory anyway. So here we go. And we haven't missed a day. You know, we disinfect doorknobs. Uh, you know, we wear masks as needed. You know, we do all the stuff, but we're not hiding at home. We're not killing the economy. Um, I feel like we've reached the right uh, balance. And I guess that you and I, we just see the balance a little bit different. Right, right. So if, if if the president were to call you tomorrow and say, Dan Alford, I want to make you the czar of robots and the czar of the coronavirus. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer we need more czars in our government just because it's a fun word to say. If, if, if they put you in charge of those things tomorrow, what does the country look like in Dan's ideal world in terms of a response to coronavirus? I would say the lockdown has to be voluntary. And uh, so if, if anybody that wants to uh, lock down is welcome to do it, and hopefully they have the resources to do it. Now, I don't think that we should support this with public dollars to the point that we bankrupt our grandkids either. But I think those of us that want to go to work, the kids that want to go to school, uh, should have the right to. And, and right now, it's interesting. you know. Uh, you say that, that our, our listeners are going to be mad at you. Uh, based on everything I've seen in the media right now, I'm the bad guy. You know, I'm, I'm the one out there trying to kill Granny. And so we got to get over that stigma. I, I'm not trying to kill Granny. Granny can go, you know, go lock down. I just want to go to work. I want to keep the 50 families at ARC Specialties that are counting on this company operating. I want to keep them fed and employed. 
Right, right. Well, it would be great if we can uh, if we can have a spirited debate like this in this country and have a conversation about these sorts of things. And nobody has to be the bad guy. It's just uh, us sharing our opinion. Because yeah, I I can I can get on board with the idea that that I want as many people to be able to keep their jobs as possible. Right, and um, yeah, you're just fortunate. You know, you can, you can do this remotely, and, and, and I'm happy for you. But you know, those of us that that uh, design, weld, grind, build huge machines that require you know 20 ton cranes, but you know, we can't really do that at home, right? You know, and so it's easy for people that are able to work at home to try to impose that rule on those people that aren't able to. But it ain't fair. You know, and we're getting a whole lot of policy made by people who are unaffected personally by that policy. Politicians, you know, uh, how many of them have been have lost their jobs? I'd say zero. And and yet we put a lot of businesses out of you know a lot of companies out of business. People are losing their jobs. So it, it's really not fair for the people that make these decisions to be completely unaffected by them. And and the same thing goes here with uh, picking winners and losers. You know they'll they'll lock down stores and won't let them uh, sell items, and uh, so that, that crushes you know the local stores, and yet online sales are okay. You know how is that not picking winners and losers? But that I, I disapprove. I hear what you're saying. I've also been told by by many conservatives that the job of the government should be nothing more than building roads and protecting its citizens and oftentimes what they mean by protecting its citizens means military but in this case i would argue it means protecting them from a virus and then the rest of the you know the rest of the time they should step aside and and not be involved in things and so in this case i i feel like there are people who are in danger because of this and the government has some kind of responsibility to protect its citizens in this way you know, you know. I, I was glad you brought up that point earlier about this is not black and white. This is gray. Right. And uh, and so uh, you know, I think that's about as far as we can go with this thing because uh, <laughs> I am perfectly happy with anybody that, that doesn't want to go out to eat, mm -hmm. not going out to eat. But I want the right to be able to go out to a restaurant. And and by the way, you're you're welcome to join us. I think we're going out tonight. So yeah, not everybody's <laughs> locked down here. So come on down. But. Uh, this is a uh, land of the free and home of the brave. Well, not so brave lately, huh? It seems that way, I guess. I guess. But this is one of those things where we will agree to disagree, but it's always fun to discuss and it's always fun to get your your point of view on these things. And I always feel like I come away with a better appreciation for where you stand on these issues and it's always fun to to go back and forth. And so, Dan, thanks for joining me and talking about lockdowns today. And uh, even if you don't go buy a helmet, I encourage you to at least get the flu shot. Thanks for taking time to talk with me today. <laughs> and you can direct all feedback from this podcast to Johnny Tyler. Um, let's uh, We can give out his email address later, but uh, direct all complaint emails to Johnny Tyler from uh, the many, many listeners. I'm just kidding. I uh, don't want to throw Johnny under the bus like that. But uh, <laughs> everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles. For Dan Elford, I'm Tyler Kern. Make sure you go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For more podcasts where we actually do discuss robots and things of that nature um, and, uh, and and much, much more of that sort of thing, also make sure to go visit the Arc Specialties website to see more about what Arc Specialties does and what Dan and his team do so very, very well. And, of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes. But until then, for Dan, I'm Tyler. We'll talk again soon.